0: Like, are you a fist pumper, a woo hooer a hand clapper, a high-fiver? I kind of like the high-five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At ChumbaCasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino-style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses, so don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void were prohibited by loss. See terms and conditions 18+. You're hanging out with some friends and putting back a few drinks. A few becomes a few too many. As the evening comes to an end and people start to head out, you think of calling for a ride. Nah, you live nearby. You can make it home, okay? It's no big deal. What are the odds you'll get pulled over anyway? And even so, what's the worst that could happen? Your insurance goes up? You lose your license? You lose your job? You total your car? You kill someone? Everyone knows about the risks of driving drunk. The results are tragic and often deadly.
1: This Christmas, feel joy, gift joy, and send them joy with the perfect gift at Arnott's. Explore an endless array of gifting that will bring joy to everyone on your list. Shop Irish at the Christmas market, support emerging new businesses with Pitch 22, or find something extra special from one of our world-class brands. Shop in store and online at arnott's.ie.
2: Thomas Bartlett Whittaker didn't feel like he fit in with his upscale suburban family. Instead of just accepting that he was different and moving on with his life, he chose to set in motion a plan that would disconnect himself from those family members. This is Monsters. (music) Thomas Bartlett Whitaker, who went by Bart, was born on December 31st, 1979, in Houston, Texas. He was the firstborn of Norman Kent Whitaker, who went by Kent, and Patricia Whitaker, who went by Tricia. Kent worked as a comptroller for a family-owned construction company, and Tricia had been an elementary school teacher, but she gave that up to be a stay-at-home mom. The couple had their second son, Kevin, on March 19, 1984. Everybody believed that the Whitakers were the perfect family, and honestly, there wasn't any reason for people to think otherwise. People close to the family said that Bart did well in school, had a good sense of humor, and was a good kid. Kevin was the more sensitive of the brothers, quick to forgive. Kevin was involved in baseball and track, student council, and was elected junior class president in high school. He loved hunting and fishing and was most recently a student at Houston Community College. Bart and Kent became avid cyclists. They spent hours together training on long rides. Kent said that he and Bart would talk about everything on those trips. He said that they tried to calculate how many miles they had ridden, and it was close to 15,000 miles. What most people, including Kent and Tricia, didn't know was that Bart had an extreme conflict going on inside his head. A psychological report from after Bart was arrested said that Bart had a tormented, irrational self-concept and personal self-identity dating back to childhood. Bart was an avid reader who had a thin boundary between reality and fantasy. He suffered from social anxiety and had trouble with expressions of affection. The report said that he was more feminine in his interests and speech, enjoying shopping and primping more than sports and outdoor activities. Bart felt like there was a lot of pressure for him to be someone that he wasn't. Kevin, on the other hand, was macho, athletic, and seemed to strive in mainstream school life. Bart resented his brother for being what he thought was the perfect version of a son. Bart decided that he could act like Kevin and be the way his parents wanted him to be. Due to a severe desire to detach himself with his own identity, he told other kids at school that he was adopted. He told closer friends that he was being trained for a unique government program which identified gifted children to be trained as spies. The family was from a Houston suburb, Sugarland. It was a city of about 68,000 people in 2003 and was about 20 miles or 32 kilometers southwest of Houston. It's an affluent city with a 2014 median household income of $115,069 compared to the national average of $53,657 or $60,072 for the Houston area just 20 minutes away. Bart considered it an upscale, suburban, polo shirt wearing community, something he didn't fit into along with his family. Bart began believing that he needed to eliminate his gene pool. Once he did that, he could fully be himself and be removed from any legacy that his immediate or extended family expected of him. Bart's delusions of not fitting in with his family only grew as his parents provided more unearned trappings of wealth. They paid for his lakeside townhome, expensive cars, his tuition for school, and a Rolex when he graduated from Sam Houston State University, which he didn't actually do. Like Christopher Porco had done just a year later, Bart had dropped out of school but led his family to believe that he was still attending. He called his parents, told them that he had finished with his finals, and suggested they go out to dinner to celebrate. On December 10th, 2003, Bart showed up to his parents' house and the entire family went to Papa Seafood Kitchen, a popular Cajun restaurant near Sugarland. While there, the family had a great time. Kent describes them joking and laughing, giving Bart the watch which was the one he had always wanted. They finished their celebration with a bread pudding dessert for Bart that had congratulations written on the plate in chocolate. When they were finished with their meal, they drove back to the Whitaker home, but as they headed into the house, Bart said he needed to get his cell phone out of his car. As Kevin entered the house, there was a gunshot. Trisha stepped into the house after Kevin and exclaimed, oh no, before she was also shot. Kent heard the loud bangs but didn't immediately understand what was happening. He said when he stepped into the house, he saw a man wearing a ski mask standing about eight feet away. His brain raced to make sense of the situation. He said he thought, which one of Kevin's goofball friends is playing a joke on us with a paintball gun? Then something slammed into his shoulder, spun him around, and he fell out the front door onto the front porch. Bart ran into the house and began wrestling with the intruder, but was shot in the arm before the gunman fled, leaving the gun behind. Neighbor Cliff Stanley heard the shots and ran to the scene where he found all four family members shot. He knelt down by Trisha and asked her what happened. She moaned and said, he shot us, then Cliff called nine one one.
1: Nine one one. Someone has just shot another Who's been shot? Uh Chris and Kit. Who shot them? Uh we don't know. Someone in the mask. What kind of injuries do they have? I w I don't know. They've just been shot. Hang on just a second. We've got them calling on another line.
2: While Cliff was on the line, Bart had also called nine one one.
1: Sure, nine one one Station emergency. <laughs> I've been shot. Who's been shot? Uh it's my mom and my dad and my brother. Hold on one second, sir. Engine one, all we have, one subject right now. Apparently the whole family's been shot. Stand by. Is this Trisha or Kent? This is Bart, the son. Okay, Bart, where, where is your wound? In the arm, my shoulder. I think I can't move my arm. Okay, who else has been shot in the house with you? Oh, I can't see. Who else was in the house with you? We were walking in the house. My brother... Oh my God! Oh God! I, can't. I, I need you to hang on, Bart. I've got help on the way. Okay? Do you know who shot you? No. Okay. Your neighbors were telling me that he had a mask on. Is that true? No. I think it's dark in here. Okay. Do you think he was burglarizing your home, or are you guys having problems with somebody? Oh God! I don't know many how many shots did he fire Bart I don't know can you tell me anything about him at all did he sound black white hispanic middle Eastern very black I don't know I, I couldn't uh, okay when he left Bart did he leave out your back door yeah I chased him that way he let you chased him out towards the back door yeah okay Bart where were you when he shot you uh I'm in the living room oh floating down okay they're they're on the way where are you in the house right now I'm in the living room You're in the living room? What? Oh, someone's here. Okay, do you see the officer's Bart? Yeah. Okay, that's the officers coming in. I'm going to go ahead and disconnect with you, okay? Okay. Thank
2: you. As Kent laid on the concrete of the front porch, he heard sirens and then footsteps as police officers stormed into the house with guns drawn. After a few minutes, they called out that the house was clear and began tending to the victims. Kevin was declared dead at the scene from a single bullet wound to the chest. A life flight helicopter landed in the cul-de-sac and paramedics loaded Trisha onto the aircraft. Once Trisha was on her way to the hospital, a second life flight helicopter landed and paramedics loaded Kent onto it. Kent's mind was racing. He had heard an officer mention a DOA, and he knew that one, if not both of his sons, had been killed. It wasn't until after arriving at the hospital's trauma center that Kent's worst fears were confirmed. Trisha and Kevin had died. Bart's wounds weren't as severe, so he was being transported to the hospital by ambulance. Soon after, Bart arrived and was wheeled into the same room. They had their wounds cleaned and temporary casts put on in preparation for further surgery. Kent had a bullet hit him in the right shoulder, traveled through the arm muscle, and shattered his mid-humerus, which isn't funny at all. Bart had been shot in the upper left arm, and the bullet had broken the bone. While Kent and Bart were in the hospital, Detective Marshall Slott investigated the shooting that had happened at the house on the 1100 block of Heron Avenue. Police immediately brought search dogs out to see if they could identify which way the shooter went, but it seemed as though the dogs couldn't pick up the correct scent, because they just kept winding up right next to Bart's SUV. At first glance, it seemed as though the Whitakers were the victims of a robbery gone bad, but upon further investigation, that theory started to become less likely. Investigators found no evidence of a break-in. The door had been unlocked and the security alarm had been disabled by whoever entered the home. The drawers were opened in the master bedroom, but nothing inside the drawers had been disturbed. Generally, a burglar will throw open drawers and toss the contents while quickly searching for valuables, but these drawers had all been pulled out the same distance and everything inside them was still in order. Nothing was missing from the house besides Bart's cell phone, which he must have just had on him because he went on a detour to get it out of his vehicle before he entered the home. All of the electronics, laptops, and jewelry were untouched. A gun safe had been pried open and a gun had been taken out of the safe. It was the same gun that was left at the scene. There were four spent shell casings. So, someone who had access to the home came in, pulled out the drawers, Pried open the gun safe, then shot all four of the Whitakers, took Bart's cell phone, and ran? That seemed like a very unlikely scenario. It was also strange that the burglar found the gun safe. It was in an isolated area of the house, so they must have known it was there. The gun that was taken was registered to Kevin Whitaker, and there was a partial palm print on the body of the gun, but it wasn't enough to generate a lead. Authorities thought they might have found their man when they arrested someone else during an armed burglary that happened a few days later in Sugarland. Investigators were quickly able to rule him out, which sent them back to square one. Detectives questioned both Kent and Bart in the hospital, but the men couldn't add anything to the investigation. As the detectives continued to hit dead ends, a reporter who was covering the case found out that Bart hadn't actually graduated from Sam Houston State University. The school had verified that he wasn't even enrolled there. He was listed as a freshman who was on academic probation. Police went back to the hospital the next day and informed Kent of their findings. They made it clear that it was suspicious that Bart had been lying and it definitely made him a suspect. Kent was furious. He managed to get himself into a wheelchair and wheeled himself to Bart's room. He woke Bart up and yelled at him, quote, Bart, what were you thinking? You weren't even in school? How could you lie to us about your graduation? End quote. Bart made excuses about being busy at work and not having enough time for school. He said he didn't want to disappoint his family and planned to make up the classes the following semester, but he wasn't even close to graduating. He was listed as a freshman, which meant he still had three years left in order to earn an undergraduate degree. Kent explained that, because of his lie, the police were now considering him a suspect. Instead of being out there looking for the real killer, they were wasting their time on him. Bart assured him that he had nothing to do with the shooting, and Kent calmed down. He assumed that the police would realize they were on the wrong track soon, but as the days went by, the police put more and more focus on Bart. That's because investigators continued to uncover information about Bart that didn't make him look good. Not only did Bart have a record for breaking into his high school and stealing computers, for which he was expelled from school and sent to a private Christian academy, he had already been involved in a plan to kill his parents. Two years earlier, while Bart was attending Baylor University in Waco, Texas, he had made plans with a former high school classmate named Adam Hipp to shoot and kill his family. Bart was going to have his college roommate drive down to Sugarland with a gun for Adam to use. An acquaintance of Bart's overheard him talking about the plan in his dorm room and called the police to report it. Police in Sugarland reported it to Kent and Trisha, but Bart was able to convince everyone that the friend was drunk and it was all a misunderstanding. Now, I understand not instantly believing that your son was planning to kill you, but when your family is murdered a few years later, don't you think that might creep back into your head? When police ask you if you've had any threats, you're not going to think, well, we were notified by police about our son planning to kill us a few years ago. Even if you don't want to incriminate your son, you're not gonna be even a little suspicious. We'll be right back. On December 15th, Adam Hip walked into the Sugarland Police Department claiming to have information about the case against Bart. Adam told Detective Slot that Bart had recruited him to kill his parents so he can inherit his father's share of the construction business. Adam told the detective how Bart planned to get his family to go out for the night. While they were out, he would enter the house through an unlocked back door and wait for them to get back home. When the family came into the house, Adam told Detective Slot that he was supposed to fatally shoot Kent, Trisha, and Kevin, then shoot Bart in the arm to take suspicious off of him as the only survivor. Adam drew a map of the Whitaker house which detailed where the front door was and where he was supposed to hide. The map perfectly matched what had happened five days earlier. Adam said that the plan was called off when someone overheard Bart talking about the murder plot which led to the Whitakers being notified about the plan. Kent and Tricia thought the idea was too far-fetched and after Bart explained that it was a misunderstanding, everybody apparently forgot all about it. Of course, Detective Slot was immediately suspicious of Adam. It's possible he was the shooter in the actual murder, but police contacted his employer who confirmed that Adam had been working late on the night of December 10th. When Detective Slot tracked down Bart's roommate from Baylor, Justin Peters, he confessed to making plans with Bart in 2001 that would involve him driving down to Sugarland and delivering a gun to Adam Hipp. He also told the detective that Bart had recruited another student, Will Anthony, in 2000 to carry out yet another plan to kill his parents. He and another friend of Bart's actually made it to the Whittaker home, but when they tried to open a window at the back of the house, an alarm went off and the two men fled. In other plans, Bart had discussed setting his parents' lake house on fire with them inside. He also discussed doing it with other relatives from his mother's side of the family there as well. The plan would have involved Bart getting minor burns but making it out of the house to deflect suspicion away from him. Those plans never made it past the talking stage. Kent and Bart went back to their house and reenacted the events of December 10th. Detective Slot was trying to get Bart to slip up, but he remained intentionally vague. The detective would say, so, he was about six feet away, and Bart would answer, yeah, about, maybe more, it's hard to remember. Once Kent and Bart were out of the hospital, they moved back into the Whitaker home together. Authorities warned Kent that Bart was their prime suspect, but the father was unwavering in his forgiveness for whoever had attacked him and killed his wife and
3: son what did you learn in those seven months he truly forgave the person that did this i mean he was the first real christian that i'd ever met that really did what jesus christ told him to do he asked you point blank did you do it bart because the cops were looking at you yeah
1: and you said no dad yeah i did even knowing he was going to forgive you
3: yeah but it's not that simple i didn't want to cause that pain on me primarily and on anyone else secondarily so um I just was a weak, I was a coward. Do you feel like you were sort of duped during that period of time? (laughs) Well, of course I did, and duped is a nice word for it.
2: Detectives continued their investigation of Bart by talking to his roommate at the townhome he had been living at, Chris Brashear. Bart and Chris both worked together at the Bentwater Yacht and Country Club in Lake Conroe. They also talked to Stephen Champagne, who lived two doors down from Bart and Chris. Chris had gotten Stephen a job as a bartender at the same country club. Both Chris and Stephen denied any involvement in the shooting at the Whitaker house, but they both agreed to be interviewed, submit DNA samples, and submit scent samples. No matches were found with the DNA or with the scent samples for Stephen, but after bloodhounds smelled Chris's scent sample, they hit on the glove that was recovered from the scene, the drawers in the master bedroom, the gun safe, and the murder weapon. When police interviewed both men, they continued to deny any involvement in the murders. They told Chris that they had evidence directly connecting him to the crime, but he wouldn't talk. He got up and left the interview.
3: I'm, I'm just going to go.
0: Is that, yes, is that all right? There's the door.
2: By now, Adam Hip had hired a lawyer who helped him work out a deal with authorities to not be prosecuted for his participation in the previous murder plot if he assisted them in their case against Bart. Adam began calling Bart and recording their conversations. He told Bart that he knew he was involved in the murders because it happened exactly the same as their plan from two years earlier. Bart eventually agreed to pay Adam $20,000 to buy his silence. He sent a FedEx mailer to Adam with a $240 down payment in cash. He sent it to a post office that had been set up in Adam's name but was being monitored by police. Bart left his fingerprints all over the package. He also signed the return address from K. Sose with the address of his home. Kaiser Sose is a character from the 1995 film Usual Suspects. Sose is a criminal mastermind who's a master at evading arrest. It seemed that Bart Whitaker viewed himself in the same way, though he really shouldn't have. Seven months after the shooting, Bart told his father that he was going out to a club and that he would see him in the morning. That was the last time Kent saw his son for quite some time. Bart had disappeared, and Kent had to accept that the only reason his son would run was because he was guilty of being involved in the shooting. On June 28, 2004, Bart's Chevy Yukon was found abandoned at the Wesley Gardens apartment homes in southwest Houston. The engine was still running. Nobody had any idea where Bart had gone. Authorities kept pressure on Chris and Stephen, making sure they knew that they were being watched. They put wiretaps on both men's phones, but neither of them spoke to each other or to Bart. Authorities then served subpoenas to Chris and Stephen's friends and family members. After a year of being watched and questioned, Steven finally broke down and told investigators that he wanted to come clean. On August 28, 2005, he sat down with Detective Slot and told him everything that had happened on the night of December 10, 2003. He claimed that he had not known about the murders ahead of time. He only drove Chris away from the scene and helped dispose of the evidence. Unfortunately for Stephen, he failed a polygraph test and authorities retracted their offer of immunity. It was revealed during Steven's testimony at trial that Bart had convinced him that, since they had already talked about the plan, Stephen was already guilty of conspiracy to commit murder, so he might as well have be the getaway driver. The day after the polygraph, Stephen gave a videotaped confession where he implicated himself... Chris, and Bart in the plot to kill the Whitaker family. Stephen explained that Chris had ridden with Bart when he drove to his parents' house on the night of the shooting. He hid in the SUV while Bart met with his family and they all drove together to Papadou Seafood Kitchen, and Stephen followed them there and kept an eye on them. Meanwhile, Chris had gone into the Whitaker home through a back door that Bart had made sure was unlocked. He also deactivated the alarm with a code provided by Bart. Chris proceeded to do a completely half-assed job at making it look like the house was burglarized. He pulled drawers in the master bedroom out a few inches and didn't touch anything inside. Come on, it's not rocket science, guys. Chris went into a crawl space through an access in Kevin's room and used a pry bar to bust open the gun safe. He retrieved Kevin's gun and loaded it with ten rounds of ammunition that he had brought with him. After Bart spent time with his family, smiling, joking, and celebrating his non-existent college graduation, the whole time knowing full well that someone was waiting inside his parents' home to kill them and his brother, he texted Chris to let them know they were on their way back. Steve followed the Whitakers back from the restaurant, and as they pulled off to go to their house... Steve followed the Whitakers back from the restaurant, and as they pulled off to go to their house, he continued around the block and parked by the house directly behind the Whitakers' house. Chris got into position near the front door and waited for the unsuspecting family to arrive back home. Kevin came in the door first, and Chris shot him in the chest. Kevin died within minutes. Trisha followed, and he shot her in the chest as well. She lived longer than Kevin, but not long enough to be saved. Next, Kent stepped inside and was shot in the shoulder. The bullet missed his heart and lungs, and Kent would survive his wound. Then Bart, who had conveniently went to his SUV to get his cell phone, which we know wasn't there because he had texted Chris from the restaurant, ran into the house and struggled with the masked intruder. Chris broke free and purposefully shot Bart in the arm before dropping the gun and fleeing out the back door. He hopped a fence into the neighbor's backyard where he walked to Stephen's car and the two drove away. Authorities knew that Stephen was telling the truth when he described a single black glove that had been dropped outside of Bart's Yukon, a detail that was never released by police. Stephen explained that Bart had offered them a portion of the life insurance payout he would get when his family was dead. They apparently had insurance policies totaling $1 to $1.5 million. He also explained that Bart wanted him to finish the job with his father. He pretended to be relieved that Kent's life had been spared, but in reality, he wouldn't get their life insurance as long as his father lived. Then Stephen told Detective Slot that he could take them to the spot where they disposed of the evidence. They had put the evidence in a duffel bag and thrown it off a bridge that ran over Lake Conroe, near where Bart's townhouse was. Even though it was a big area to cover, police divers got lucky and found the bag on their third dive. The bag had been sitting at the bottom of the lake for two years, but inside was a water bottle that still had Chris's DNA on it. They also found a pry bar that matched the markings and paint transfer on the gun safe, ammunition that matched what was in the murder weapon, the other glove that matched the one found at the scene, and they found a cell phone that was determined to be Bart's. Police arrested both Chris Brashear and Stephen Champagne for their involvement in the murder of Trisha and Kevin and the attempted murder of Kent. They also issued a warrant for Bart, but they didn't know where he was. Bart Whitaker had stolen between seven dollars and $10,000 from his father's house and fled to Mexico. He started using the name Rudy Rios and settled in a small town called Saralvo, about 50 miles or 80 kilometers south of the United States border. He told people that he was a soldier who had been shot while deployed. He said that he had gone AWOL because he didn't want to go back to war. One of the friends he made in Mexico said Bart told him, quote, he got the scar in the Afghanistan war. He said that there was a surprise attack on his group by the Afghanis. Most of his group were killed. He shot at one with his rifle, but there was another one who got him in the shoulder, end quote. With the money he had taken from Kent, Bart was able to find a small apartment and started doing work as a day laborer. It wasn't easy to fly under the radar since it was uncommon to see an American living in a small Mexican town working. Bart began going to a local church where he met a girl who played guitar there named Cindy Lou Salinas. She thought Bart was attractive for some reason. He would bring her flowers and managed to sweep her off her feet. The two began dating and when Cindy Lou introduced him to her family, they loved him. Bart Whitaker was an excellent con man. He'd been conning people his entire life by living the life he thought his parents wanted him to have, instead of showing them his true identity of an unfeeling sociopath. He had spent his life learning how to tell people exactly what they wanted to hear and make people believe everything he said. Cindy Lou's father liked Bart so much that he gave him a job at the family's furniture store. He said that Bart was one of his top employees. He was obedient and hardworking. He also gained her father's sympathy by telling him how he didn't want to kill people anymore. He didn't want to kill children anymore. We'll be right back. For someone who felt like he didn't fit into the more affluent area of Sugarland, Bart wasn't very good at escaping that situation. He moved to a small town in Mexico and became part of one of the wealthier families in town. Maybe that was his plan when he started wooing Cindy Lou. Nobody knows. She said in a later interview that Bart would tell her that he was an only child. He would say that he never loved his mother and she never loved him either. He claimed that his mother was a prostitute and that his family never showed him love. Bart's real personality eventually started coming out over time. Cindy Lou caught him jiggling the safe box her family stored money and valuables in. When he saw her, he said, I want to open the box to see what's inside. Then you and I are going to keep the money. One evening, Cindy Lou had gotten into an argument with her mother and ended up smashing a guitar in anger. When she turned to Bart for comfort, he said, quote, Don't be angry at your parents. If you want, we can kill them. And then you will not be angry at them anymore. End quote. Apparently, this has become Bart's new shtick now. Are you having problems with your parents? Maybe they have too many rules. They don't like who you're dating. Or maybe you're just like me, and your parents are great, and you're just a monster. Come on down to Bart Whitaker, I mean, Rudy Rios's Parent Killatorium. Use offer code I'm a douche and get 15% off your first parent killing. yee Terms and conditions apply. Not responsible for parents who survive shooting, dodge bullets, or kill gunmen. Subject to 10% Inheritance Commission. Licensed in all 50 states of Mexico. For the first time, Cindy Lou said she was afraid of Bart. On September 14, 2005, Detective Slot received a call from a man who would later reveal his identity to be that of Rudy Rios. Except this was the real Rudy Rios. Rudy had worked with Bart at the country club, and one day when Bart mentioned that he was being pressured by police, Rudy offered to help him get into Mexico. Bart paid him $3,000 to escort him to Mexico and let him use his identity. The real Rudy had kept his mouth shut until authorities offered a reward for information about Bart's whereabouts. Rudy had no problem selling out Bart for a $10,000 reward. On September 22, 2005, Bart Whitaker was arrested without incident in Mexico. He was brought to the border and dumped onto U.S. soil where Detective Slott was waiting to finally catch the person he had been hunting for nearly two years. In December, the district attorney announced that he would be seeking the death penalty for Bart. He was not seeking the death penalty for Chris or Steve because he believed that they would not have committed a violent crime if it weren't for Bart. Bart was offered a plea deal for an admission of guilt, but he rejected the offer. One year later, the DA received a Christmas card from Bart that said he should keep his family in mind during the holiday season. Not only was Bart so brazen as to make repeated plans to kill his family, then flee to Mexico where he offers to kill his girlfriend's family, now he was making thinly veiled threats against the prosecutor's family? Was Bart so delusional that he thought his case would be dropped? Did he believe that he had the ability to harm the prosecutor's family? Or was he just that much of a narcissistic douchebag? When the trial started in March of 2007, Bart refused to enter a plea, so the judge was required to enter a plea of not guilty on his behalf. There was no question that Bart was guilty of conspiring to kill his family. Bart is just one of those people who thinks he's smarter than everyone else. His defense attorney said that his entire case was not about Bart's innocence, but on sparing him the death penalty. After testimonies from Stephen Champagne, Will Anthony, and Adam Hipp, all detailing multiple plans to kill the Whitakers, Bart remained silent. He did not speak in his own defense, which is surprising for someone like him, who usually believe they can talk their way out of anything and manipulate people into getting what they want. After only an hour and a half of deliberation, the jury found Bart guilty of capital murder. During the sentencing phase, Bart did take the stand to explain how the murders were not financially motivated like the prosecutor claimed, but because of the hatred he had developed toward his family due to the high expectations set by them that he could never fulfill. Of course, like every other criminal, his crime was not his fault. He claimed that he was a changed man, which is unlikely since he's not even willing to admit fault. He said that the change happened immediately after the shooting. He said he changed while he was laying on the floor in his parents' house, bleeding. Except that he talked to Stephen about finishing the job by killing his father. He wasn't changed enough to not plan another murder in the months following the death of his mother and brother. Then in Mexico, he offered to kill Cindy Lou's family. He wasn't changed enough to not plan a murder while he was hiding in Mexico. He's a sociopath who is telling people what they want to hear. He's a lifetime con artist. He conned his family into believing he was the son they wanted. He conned his friends to kill for him. He conned his father into believing he wasn't guilty. He conned Cindy Lou and her family into taking him in. Now he's trying to con people that he has somehow magically changed. He spent years planning to murder his family and planned more murders after he finally did carry out one of those plans. Now he's suddenly changed? I don't think so.
1: Why did you do what you did? I mean, why did you want to kill your family?
0: I can go back and tell you why I felt so inadequate and why I felt that my parents didn't love me. And uh, I recognize so many of the errors now. There's a difference between an excuse and a reason, and I don't try to make excuses for what I did. I, I try to, you can't, you can't make an excuse for this. But yeah, there were things that happened that were reasons for it.
2: During Kent's testimony, a recorded phone call between him and Bart was played for the jury. In the call, Bart is angry that he wasn't offered a plea deal that included parole eligibility. He also expressed anger that his attorney had sent an associate to a court appearance, telling his father, quote, we're not paying for legal aid here, end quote. Then he told Kent that he wanted the, quote unquote, big guns for his next court appearance. Bart is a spoiled brat that will always be a spoiled brat not only did he attempt to kill his father but he started planning to finish the job after he lived now he's having him pay for an expensive lawyer to try to get the least amount of punishment for it does anybody else see the irony in this during his time on the stand bart started crying when the prosecutor questioned him about the death of his brother the prosecutor reminded bart that he hadn't cried during the entire trial and asked him why he was crying now bart responded quote, "horrible memory" You believe a person can't be sorry for the things he did?" End quote. The prosecutor answered, quote, "No, I think they can be sorry, Mr. Whittaker. But I don't think you are. I think you're sorry you got caught, and now you're figuring out how to get out of the death penalty." End quote. Even though both Kent and Trisha's brother, Bo Bartlett, took the stand to plead for Bart's life, the jury sentenced Bart Whittaker to death for the murders of Kevin and Trisha Whittaker. One juror in a later interview said that she believed he was still a danger, even from prison. Bart hadn't pulled the trigger himself. He had continually convinced other people to kill for him. For that, they felt that life in prison was not a sufficient punishment. When the verdict was read, Bart showed no emotion. He was incapable. Chris Brashear took a plea deal and was sentenced to life in prison with the possibility of parole after 30 years. He will be eligible for parole in 2035. Stephen Champagne was sentenced to 15 years in exchange for his testimony and has since been released. Bart filed all the appeals he could to save himself from the death penalty, but they were all denied. One of his appeals was based on prosecutorial misconduct. Sorry, Bart, the prosecutor being right doesn't mean there was any misconduct. He then tried to appeal on the grounds of ineffective counsel. Again, just because you were actually guilty doesn't mean your counsel was not doing their job. He also tried to appeal based on the cruelty of the death penalty. This was coming from a man who sentenced his mother and brother to death. His brother and his mother died slowly, in pain, choking on their own blood over the course of minutes, and Bart was arguing that lethal injection was cruel. The irony is unbelievable. The balls on this guy must be the size of grapefruit. Bart was scheduled to be executed on February 22, 2018 at 6 p.m. Kent made one last-ditch effort to save his son by writing to the Texas State Board of Pardons and Paroles, asking them not to kill his last remaining family member. On February 22nd, after Bart had eaten his final meal, the seven members of the Texas State Board of Pardons and Paroles voted unanimously to commute Bart's sentence to life without parole. Governor Greg Abbott surprisingly signed the papers, saying, quote, Mr. Whitaker's father insists that he would be victimized again if the state put to death his last remaining member of his immediate family, end quote.
3: Thank you guys for, um, for waiting for us. I apologize for the wait, uh, we got quite a celebration going on when we got the news. Um, but I wanted to uh, thank everyone. Uh, in particular, I want to thank the governor for doing uh, the hard work to uh, review this, this unusual case and give it the uh, extra special time it took to, uh, to reach a, a good decision. And I, he did make the right decision, and we're very grateful for that. I want to thank the um, parole board, Uh, that uh, group of of seven men and women who spent their life in law enforcement uh, and prison management uh, who really, really worked hard at this. And uh, it was a huge file that they went through and each one came to the same conclusion that in this case, uh, a commutation of uh, the original sentence was the right thing. And we're very grateful to, uh, to them for doing that.
2: Now Bart spends his time in prison writing. At least he considers himself a writer, but what he does is post a blog spewing verbal diarrhea about his case and life in prison. His writing is pompous and stilted. He writes in a manner that makes it obvious that he wants to sound smart and have some grand meaning, but it's all bullshit. In 2019, Bart was accused of writing a book and selling it for profit while in prison. A convict is not allowed to profit from their crimes. They're also required to get prison approval if they're going to operate a business, which is what Bart is doing if the book contains no references to his crime. Inmates are allowed to write books, but if they want to sell and or profit off of them, they need to go through proper channels, something that Bart changed, Whitaker made no effort to do. The book is titled, Who Fears Hell Runs Toward It? on the Christian metaphysical foundations of the American penitentiary and the missing image of resistance in Foucault's Discipline and Punish. See what I mean about pompous? He also uses the author name Thomas Bartlett Whitaker, M.A. Since he got himself a free master's degree paid by your tax dollars, he clearly has to make people aware. Bart will always take any chance he can to make himself feel superior to everyone else. I can easily counter that, though. Hey, Bart, I'm not in prison. Simple. The book was available on Amazon, but is currently listed as out of print. If you're the victim of domestic abuse, please reach out to someone for help. Please talk to your local battered women's shelter or call the National Domestic Abuse Hotline at 1-800-799-SAFE. That's 1-800-799-7233. Or you can go to thehotline.org to chat with someone online. The great thing about this website is that, at any time, hitting the escape key twice will take you to a Google search page. That way, if your abuser is nearby, you won't get caught looking for help. If you're having feelings of harm in yourself or someone else, or even just need someone to talk to, please contact your local mental health facility, call 911, or call Mental Health America, who operate the National Suicide Prevention Hotline at 1-800-273-TALK. That's 1-800-273-8255. They're available 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, and we'll talk to you about any mental health issue you might be facing. Thanks so much for listening to this podcast. You can subscribe or follow the show to ensure you don't miss an episode, and you can leave us a rating on whatever podcast app you use. If you'd like to support the show, you can do that by checking out our merchandise at Teespring. You can also discuss the channel and the episodes on our subreddit, r forward slash thisismonsters. You can find more ways to support our show and how to find us on social media by visiting thisismonsters.com. Thanks again, and be safe. Did
0: you know that driving high is considered driving under the influence? That's right. Driving under the influence of marijuana is against the law in every state, even in states where marijuana is legal. That means driving high could get you a DUI. And if you think law enforcement officers can't tell when you're driving high, you're wrong. Your friends can tell. Your coworkers can tell. Even your parents can tell. Everyone can tell. So, what makes you think that law enforcement officers don't know when you're driving high? Driving under the influence of marijuana can slow your response time and change how you perceive time and speed. So, even if you think you're fine to drive when you're high, you're not. Because the bottom line is, if you feel different, you drive different. And driving high is driving under the influence so remember drive high get a dui paid for by nitza
1: as prices keep creeping up your entertainment budget doesn't have to take a hit live one plus has all the music you love ad free for only 3.99 per month dive into live one's massive library of songs listen to curated playlists or create your own check out exclusive artist hosted stations and do it all for the best price in streaming Lock in a Live One Plus membership for just $3.99 per month now, and you'll not only beat inflation, you'll get all your favorite music ad-free. Check out liveone.com slash best music for details. When you're cutting it fine, but the tractor in front is out for the day. No winner of this week's you-know-what. So much for lucky seven. But some things you can depend on. Like in home heating. Emo, Jones Oil and Campus Oil are now Certa, Delivering the same warmth to your home now and into the future. For home heating you can depend on. See CertaIreland.ie.